0: This is Lead with a Question.
1: That was what Ed saw as the inflection point in Pixar's life that, great, 25 years, now what do we do? And now it had to be added to. And there was this sense of adding even one person to that mix was going to be profoundly dangerous. And Ed had this idea that education could potentially be that thing that rapidly recreated the 25 years of immersion and learning and failure and relationship and trust.
0: Hi, I'm Rob Callan. We live in a time when people are seeing that the old way of doing business is broken and that leading into the future requires something new, a deeper focus on humanity, the courage to let go of power and ego, a desire to nurture the conditions for co-creation, and the bravery not to have all the answers. On this show, I, along with my friends Chris Deaver and Ian Claussen, connect with guests who embody these principles. And whether household names or not, they've shattered the status quo, often as misfits, to shape the future with others and achieve miraculous things in work and life. Some guests are harder to describe than others. Take today's invitee, for example. Well, he's a teacher, a trainer, a recruiter, a coach. How about a juggler or an actor, an artist? a calligrapher? And what about a filmmaker, programmer, or systems analyst? The fact is that all these labels, and more, apply. With such diversity of interest, it might not surprise you that our guests would eventually end up working at places like Apple and Pixar. Places known for incubating great ideas, mold-breaking design, and play. So, how can you create a culture of curiosity? That's the question we'll consider today with Randy Nelson in part one of a special two part episode of Lead with a Question.
1: We really weren't looking for anybody in particular. It was just. In gigging in those early days, you went wherever you could. And we had a little juggling show, three of us. um, And we had um, huge aspirations and uh, sharp things. And that was what we sort of went on. Um, We juggled sickles, hatchets, and torches. And we were overeducated college students who were still in school at that point. Two of my friends at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I was at Santa Clara. Um, And uh, we had just graduated and decided this was going to be what we did. But we didn't know anything about it. And so it was all um, every day was an invention and every day was a discovery Um, that was pretty rich. And then, you know, this guy gave me a quarter and he had this very intense look in his eyes. You know, you sort of (laughs) you do this show and uh, when the show is over, people walk away, which is a really wonderful thing about that form of life. Uh, it's um, the purest form of uh, money laundering that human beings have come up with. Because if you think like money has some taint on it and you go out and you do a show, you do that show and you go, hey, we're doing this show and people can stand there and watch the show and take in every aspect that they want and then go, bye, walk away. Um, Somebody who does in that case give you money has done so out of, well, who knows what. But there's something about it that they considered value. They set what they thought a compensation should be, and they exchanged that right at that moment. Like I said, it's the purest money ever. Um, so it's always an interesting exchange to see who stays. And we were really good at keeping the crowd. And we had a great hat wrap. Hat rap is a hard phrase to say, but what it is you say as you're passing the hat that keeps the crowd there because it's got to be more entertaining than anything you did up to that point, including setting things on fire. Anyway, Um, but there was this face, you know, and the crazy thing is that years later, I saw that same face several times as I one by one met Steve's kids Um, It's kind of the face of a baby lion that's like, I could eat you, but I'm not going to bother right now. When I'm bigger, I may keep you in mind. There's just this like, you're part of my environment, but I am uh, one of those creatures in this environment that has some sway. Not arrogant. Like, lions aren't arrogant. They're mostly lazy. Not suggesting any laziness from that encounter, but... Anyway, it was that weird moment of seeing something. And um, so uh, we were then hired to do the Apple II Forever um, company picnic at Apple. Um, and uh, we began a series of negotiations. We ended up being successful. But the net of it was we said, we're going to come and do our show. This is kind of like passing the hat. We're going to come and do our show, and you should pay us the Macintoshes this is april of 1984 an absolutely audacious thing to ask for the macintosh has literally just shipped and apple's uh accounting folks are saying like no 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 there is no code b for barter <laughs> where this is a business and what's your rate we'll pay you that and we'll get a check cut and all that kind of you know hr stuff uh and the day of the show came and we walked into the um uh conference room where the um Uh, The Pirate Building, where the Macintosh had been done, Um, and there was the Bosendorfer piano, and there was a table with three beautiful Macintoshes and printers and bags on one table, and on the other table was one Mac and printer and bag, and there was Robin Williams standing there with Steve Jobs. And Robin Williams and uh, the Flying Karamazov Brothers, our show, were going to be the entertainment for the company party that day which was honoring the apple 2 and the apple 2c and the campaign was apple 2 forever and the apple 2 was then discontinued about six months later <laughs> <laughs> anyway so we juggled and uh, steve gave us the um uh the max and um uh he sat me down after the show and started teaching me how to use the mac and he went oh no no that's dumb um And he sent for somebody. He brought Susan Kerr, uh, one of the original Mac team members, the woman that designed the graphic user interface, arguably one of the most influential artists of the 20th century because she designed the pointer that's on the screen. Mm. That pointer may be one of the most ubiquitous visual artifacts human beings have ever encountered. It's functional. It's positive. It's direction. I mean, the metaphor you can drive out of. Thank you. Um, And uh, he got Susan to come from the party and sat her down next to me and taught me how to use the Macintosh by drawing one rabbit, circling it with a lasso, holding down the option key and filling the screen with rabbits. <laughs> I asked Steve for the font editor because I'm a calligrapher, and he said, "Oh, our font editor is one of the biggest pieces of shit you've ever seen. It's just a terrible piece of software; it crashes all the time." And I said, <laughs> "Well, that doesn't bother me, <laughs> you know." Yeah, and um, and uh, we talked about a little bit and about um, six weeks later, Susan Kerr sent me a disk off of her desk. You know, the number three and a half inch. Uh, micro floppies oh yeah 18 labels pasted on it remember you could never get the label off so you put another label on until it wouldn't go in the drive anymore Um, and on it was the internal use only um, apple system font um editor and so i was the first person outside of apple to create a macintosh font wow anyway that's getting a quarter from steve (laughs) wow there's a thread in there which is which is that Steve was always a person who exhibited the fact that while he was often the most interesting person in the room he really did commit himself to being interested. And I mean you're there with Robin Williams it was funny Robin Williams is such a energetic source and we had opened for Robin About six months before, when he'd come back to San Francisco after the start of Mork and Mindy, and this was the the giant return tour, and here he is in San Francisco, loving, and we got to be his opening act at an old club um, in the city that isn't around anymore called The Boarding House. And um, at the end of this week-long run, he said the most incredible thing. He said, you know, you guys are so good. I bet the next time we work together, I'll be your opening act. So when we were there at the Apple show, he insisted on opening for us. Oh, mm, so that's really Robin cool. So Robin Williams opened for us. Steve Jobs paid us in, in uh, Macintoshes that you couldn't buy in April 1984. And he got an original Mac team member out of the party to teach me how to use it. So that's a day that I remember. It's awesome. Yeah, but, but interested over interesting. That's the key that comes out of this.
2: So what was the moment where Steve Jobs was like, Randy, I, w- I want you to come work, work with me. Tell us about that time.
1: Yeah. Um, I, uh, I wrote Steve a letter when I was still a juggler, right? Uh, and I wrote Steve a letter and I said, um, I've waited a while to write this letter because I had to see the machine and I had found a friend who had a friend who worked at next who had a cube at home and this is at 0.6 of next step um and uh people could have machines at home they weren't allowed to show them anybody and i was allowed into a back bedroom and was shown <laughs> this machine and i don't know if you ever saw next machine but if it was just such a incredible, it was a logical extension of everything we were doing. It was like a Macintosh. And yet it was this incredibly powerful machine. Um, and you could see all of those Unixy things, all those workstation things in this accessible, it was like a Mercedes interior, uh, on a semi truck. And you were like, I could do something with that. i was just like, so, but I wrote Steve a letter and I said, I wasn't willing to write this letter until I'd seen the hardware and software and experienced it to know that I was ready to commit to this. I'm ready. It was like, so audacious that i would be letting steve know it's time now for me to come on and he wrote back and said yeah let's talk (laughs) um and so uh i got (laughs) i told them i knew about object-oriented programming what i knew about was i'd been programming my whole life but i'd always had a uh, that Macintosh that I got from Steve was always backstage at the show, and it turns out doing a two-hour show um, is a perfect amount of time for software development. You get two compiles, right? You set off something running at the start of the show, and at intermission you come and you go, "Oh crap, forgot a delimiter." You fix something, and then you've got another act to get through a whole another compile before you run out of electricity and you put everything back on the bus. Um, so. Uh, I knew enough programming that I understood objects. And this is a time in which nobody understood objects. I didn't understand them well, but I showed that I really, really cared about the fact that nothing you did in building software um, was anything other than a story. Beginning, middle, and end, intention, conflict. So I basically taught story but I taught it about, I think my interview presentation was about, um, hammers we love (laughs) and just talking about, there's a story behind every tool and the tool maker and the way it fits a hand. And so, uh, I got that letter that said that incredible thing that says, um, uh, I accept this insanely great offer.
2: Randy, I, I love the fact that this is a true example of one of our principles define the situation. This is a moment in your life where you're like not waiting for someone else to, you know, charter your next move in your career. You're like, I'm going to be brave and I'm going to write this letter, you know, where most people don't write the letter.
1: Yeah. I mean, what was the worst thing? Oh, I, how do you get, you write the letter, you don't write the letter, Ian, I suspect, because you think to yourself, I could write a great letter, but how could I actually get that physical thing from my hand to his hand? The whole world is built to filter those physical artifacts uh, from the noise level, focus is one of the most important things in business, in, in anything. And preserving focus is critical. Uh, it's one of the interesting challenges I hope we talk about a little bit about the tension between allowing people to focus or encouraging focus an environment of focus and the requirements of collaboration, which are primarily in opposition in some way. Um, we'll talk, I'm sure, at some point in this conversation about how important it was for Steve to have a plan for unplanned collaboration. But actually getting a physical artifact into Steve Jobs' hands, even in those days at Next, was a challenge. So here's what I did. I put my resume inside a, a brown envelope. And on the brown envelope, it said, personal Steve Jobs'. Inside that, uh, on top of that brown envelope were three red velveteen juggling balls. Like Mm. you just wanted to touch them. They looked so sensuous, just beautiful, perfect juggling balls. And there's something um, coiled in the quality of a set of juggling balls. They look like they're meant to be used. It's like looking at the gear shift in a vehicle. You think, let's go fast. Oh, there, so um, Don Norman's concept of affordance, you know, Don Norman, uh, Don Norman um, is an Apple fellow and has written mm. a lot about design. And one of the key ideas is certain things present to us, not only that they can be interfaced, but how they would be interfaced. And that's the notion mm. of affordance um, would presents itself as something it'd be scraped um glass presents itself as something could be shattered um metal presents itself as something would be dented anyway that's the notion of Mm. importance um juggling balls have that quality it's like oh and this is a long time ago but once upon a time in our industry in in software development um shrink wrap mattered tremendously does that mean anything to you shrink wrap getting to shrink wrap was when the the product was done and you were actually talking about making it available to consumers. And Whoa. so philosophically the idea of sh- getting to shrink wrap meant you've mm. done all the things you could do and you were ready for that next glorious stage or Terrible stage in life in which payday. people were yeah <laughs> payday people are gonna payday not just compensation but the, I've done this with my life and I think it's gonna be beautiful in your life and you're gonna love this and I can't wait for you to see this and and you could hate it all those things so resume juggling balls on top and the whole thing shrink wrapped
2: oh my God. so you could
1: see it you could touch it it had that quality of it it just wanted to be opened and it said personal Steve Jobs. Genius. And so by doing that, I had... It's straight, the Trojan horse, like nobody, they can't touch it, right? Yes. <laughs> That's it. That's it. It's like, oh, somebody's going to not just get it to Steve, but hustle it upstairs. I mean, that was my notion that it was going to not just get to him, but like be briskly delivered. And it turns out I got a call from somebody in tech support that said they wanted to interview me. And I, I worked in tech support at Next for, uh, I think, two weeks. And the person at the time who was doing the teaching um, of uh, Next Step um, wanted to do something else, and so I got this giant binder and I started teaching Next Step. It was so wonderful! What a what an opportunity! What what a community of people! I don't think I will ever be in as fine a community of every single person was world class at what they do as I had at next until I ended up at Pixar and to have found that twice in one's career, absolutely unbelievable. I am a truly blessed human being to have been around that much amp amplification. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then, and then going to Apple
3: is, you know, it's like you've got three times and the interesting thing is about yeah. that experience you shared is like, it was so, it was so inviting. We talk about pull versus push, right? You, you created an experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in, in an apple in the most apple fashion. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. That's, that's really, really amazing. You, um, you
2: pulled the right person into your resume.
1: with <laughs> Steve Jobs name on it. Yeah. Yeah. As it turned out, and you know, this has all been juggling for me. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I am one of those people who have a very, very clear plan looking backwards but looking forwards i've had just a lot of remarkable experiences and have at least felt i've practiced good timing it's an old joke
2: yeah so tell tell us about your 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 time randy with um with pixar you know what were those early days like and you know they really cracked their culture really cracked the code for a brain trust concept you know this notion yeah. of co-creation where you know, magic can come together with people and ideas. What, you know, what were some of the things that you were able to witness early on?
1: Um, Pixar was a remarkable experience. And as you ask Ian, the beginning was terrifying. Um, uh, I, am terrified. I mean, look, I've juggled a chainsaw. Uh, I've dropped 60 feet on a rope from the fly balcony of the Lincoln center on stage. Um, I've done things that most people would consider terrifying. Uh, This was terrifying for me um, because here was this opportunity um, and the goal was really straightforward. Ed Catmull, the president. was overseeing an organization with pixar which most people was thinking as an overnight success the people who were there at that moment when i joined in 1997 and uh, the movie toy story had just been completed um had been working together for 25 years almost um the same core group of maybe 25 people um with this vision that you know how important it is to have uh, anchoring um, to provide direction, and when people share such a clear direction, a lot of other things aren't necessary or are less important in terms of the uh, kinds of things that we teach people about how to maintain an organization, because the um, the goal was so clear. Somebody's going to make the first movie without cameras, and so what the point of that is that you could imagine a whole new category of things that you could make movies about that could be as substantial and engaging as a movie, but you didn't have to find a hill that had that tree that looked that way at, you know, that particular moment in time. Um, and they have been working on that for 25 years. And Ed Catmull's concern was, okay, now we've actually made a movie. Do you know the, uh, there's an old dictum in, um, uh, in programming, um, that there are only three interesting numbers. Have you heard this? Mm-hmm. Zero, one, and many. <laughs> and so, most people were at the zero state of making digital films. Pixar had gotten to the one state of making digital films. It, it had gone from can't be done to can be done. The next thing is not making number two. The next thing is making n. You have to make a a quantum change. That's probably not what I mean. A phase change from being a, all of us doing everything we can could make one of these two. There's a system for making as many of these as you could hope for. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was what Ed saw as the inflection point in Pixar's life that great, 25 years All it took was all of us putting every bit of heart and soul into everything we knew over 25 years. Now what do we do? And so Ed had this notion, and we developed this idea, I think, I hope together, that um, education could be a solvent, Why do you need a solvent? Because as you add people to the organization, you're bringing in everything unique about them that's different than the organization. And this organization had had 25 years to kind of wear those differences off of each other, to round those tough edges, or to recognize where those tough edges were and that they actually were part of the cutting edge of the company that reduced some kind of bullshit or got to the... Everybody says you can't do this. What they meant is they didn't know how. So you need the hard and the soft. And they would worked out after 25 years so many wonderful sort of balances in those things. And now it had to be added to. And there was this sense of adding even one person to that mix was going to be profoundly dangerous. Could it it stand? And Ed had this idea that education could potentially be that thing that rapidly re- created the 25 years of immersion and learning and failure um, and relationship and trust. He didn't know. But he said, here we are making things that are like sculpture, like paintings, um, and yet we don't know the first thing about sculpting and painting. And yet there is a human history that brings in all kinds of expertise and insights and rules of thumb and what you do and what you don't and a language and a vocabulary. And if you can share a language and a vocabulary and you can consistently manage to preserve that intention, something good ought to happen, right? Keep keep that intention that has driven things and then give a language and an experience for both new and old that they shared that was about fundamentals and so this audience seemed to really grasp the fact that they have been sculpting and in front of you the digital sculpt of a character you you just kind of turn it but in the real world a sculptor gets up and physically walks around a physical sculpture we thought if we could get these digital artists to be typing on the keyboard with clay under their fingers or wiping paint off of their hands when they went back to create uh, digital texture, that inevitably those things were going to be better in the individual artist's hands. But the development of that out of traditional education structures was going to build a culture, was going to continue a culture that was well-established, but was incredibly delicate because it was completely Completely organically grown it no one had ever um, tried to cultivate it cultivate culture there you go so terrified uh, department of one and I remember that I was telling a story recently. I bought a little car along the way uh, while I was there in my first year because I would be sitting in a meeting with Ed and working on the million-dollar budget for education for Pixar University. Um, and then 15 minutes before noon, I'd be like, I got to get out of here. I have to go and pick up the food for the class. So we fed everybody in our noontime classes because they donated their lunch hour and productions donated an hour of production. So education was always a first class responsibility and a part of your every day and was never a thing you could do as a, this might be nice. Mm. You weren't forced to go to class, but it was paid for. There was an economic base for it. Um, it was and intentional. it was feeding them. That's right. Part of that was feeding them. And so I had to leave the meeting and go and get the burritos (laughs) to be back in time for (laughs) class. So it was everything from reading the best things that I could from uh, Walt Disney um, to uh, trying to find somebody who could actually teach uh, staging. And I still haven't found any good staging teachers. This is fascinating. I've always been amazed and fascinated
3: and and just impressed by pixar in general i remember reading articles about your work there right standing up pixar university and one of the things i've wondered over the years because i've also we've also seen that you know pixar was very intentional about hey you know the core of story and character that is it would run kind of parallel with you know uh disney in some ways to say hey we're building amazing stories amazing characters and yet doing it in a very different way as far as the technology, right? And there was a list of, uh, at least my understanding was there's a list of uh, elements that were intentionally not Disney, right? That Pixar said, okay, we're not going to have the traditional villains, right? We're not going to have yeah. the music, right? And it might have been a list of 10 or 13 things, I don't remember. But it was yeah. basically, these are, these are what we're not going to do. So I'm curious in the context of learning and, and, you know, Pixar university versus like Disney university with the animation there, you know, were there things that besides the core things that were shared, uh, that are probably more obvious, were there things that you said, Hey, we want to do this differently. Right. And what were there things that you're intentional about, you know, that, that was going to be, 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 be different.
1: Yeah, I, I think that there there were a lot of things there um, that were different, but in the same way that if you were like, imagine you're a garage band, and you're playing rock and roll, and you're you finding a bit of a sound that sounds like you. Um, it's really important for you to be aware of what it is that, you know, this. a uh, I've bitten off more than I can chew here, but um, there's this quality that you're looking for and like, what is it that is us? And you're trying to amplify that. You're trying to find ways of moving that forward. So it it's kind of not helpful to put a lot of negative energy into that space. You know, uh, yeah, it's not bad to have strictures. Um, There's a great Brian Eno line. You know, Brian Eno, the conceptual musician. Eno uh, said something to the effect of um, uh, an easement is the abandonment of a stricture. And my my sense is human beings thrive in easements, and they sometimes do well in strictures. But there's that "Ah," feeling. Um. If you want to really live in the easements, you don't spend too much time thinking about the strictures you've abandoned. Uh, the creative process is difficult and delicate, and you may have more better language than I do on this. But one thing that I have sensed and one thing that we saw at Pixar was that uh, joyous filmmaking. Telling the stories that you hadn't seen told, telling them in ways you wanted to see them, um, just naturally leads you to avoid a certain kind of a cliche, uh, a certain kind of a, uh, and some of the things in that map were like, we're not going to have, we're not going to do musicals. Okay, that was a big deal. Um, And uh, there will be, therefore, there will be no I wish I want song. Um, there will, you know, some of the things from the, the Disney pattern, but that wasn't so much like, OK, you've got this great movie, but you pitched this great idea. But I hear a kind of I want, I wished thing. Now it's storytelling. Of course, you have to know why the character is driven towards a particular desire. Um, so it wasn't an avoidance so much as it was a joyous engagement with trying to create the films that weren't out there that everyone in the studio wanted to see um if there was any tussle it happened mostly between the folks at disney especially jeffrey katzenberg at the time who was in charge of animation um and the folks at Pixar and a certain amount of Steve Jobs inserted in there, where Steve was not an expert in filmmaking, but he was an expert in deal making. Um, and he had a very clear plan about how to ultimately become an equal to Disney in the way that no one else had ever done. When you work with Disney, you either get uh, consumed or subsumed or destroyed. But you don't retain your identity. And you certainly don't aim for being Disney-us. hyphen But that was all Steve saw. <laughs> um, uh, so um, there was some tension. There was some... Uh, th- But so much of what happened was about, uh, I finally have this chance to build this thing I want to build. It's not that I'm spending a lot of time in making my car saying, and it doesn't have fins, no fins on this car. No, I'm spending a lot of time making this car going, look how sleek it is. I'm not thinking about the not
3: part. Yeah, you talked earlier too about the themes of, um, uh, you know, and witnessing as you entered the organization, you know, Pixar. um, And I'm sure this, you saw over time too is hey there's this collective focus right on what they're building and yeah there's a t- there's a, a tension between that and the you know the the me- the messy uh you know chaos maybe of of collaboration and what that what that brings yeah. right and so it's that you know kind of funneling effect if you will or or focus you know kind of um but like how did how did that play out and did was there know and maybe from your standpoint with learning how did how did that get influenced to you know kind of build more of that muscle uh and just what did you see that were observations maybe about the culture like it maybe maybe some of it just amplified naturally um, but where yeah yeah, what were your observations about with experiences with
1: that one of the things that stood out for me is that and Catmull in particular has a a gift for thinking about I know, it's not exactly codifying because that seems like it's, um, you know, abstracting or picking away something to get to an essence while discarding critical details. And that's that would not be Ed's way. He was very data driven um, and yet he could move easily from a, a pile of data and what they said to a high level concept that might capture that or might challenge that data. He was always again uh, i think the theme of this conversation is it's powerful to be interesting um but it's almost unlimited power to be interested and and ed was always interested I love that um and um so we talked about that that principle a lot, and one of the things that Ed gave me was something that I think is, is really strong. An example of that, what is the language, how did it translate, how did it show up on an everyday, because concepts are great, they're big, but you can't. Right around them, and you can't sharpen them at the pencil sharpener. And you know, you want something that's practical enough and, and tangible enough. Every person knows that they can handle it and do something with it. That's why we looked at education. But this um, uh, notion of, of an edism that was tangible and helped drive specific decision making. Ed described at one point to me, almost offhand, his notion of what I ended up calling uh, Ed's biases. Um, and this was part of the messiness of collaboration. I think a great phrase that was just used um, it is um, that you you don't know where the swim lanes are. You don't know what you're supposed to be working on, what you're not allowed to work on. And there are places where you are overstepping and there are places where you're completely within your bounds, even though most places would say you're overstepping, but good collaboration demands that you like say, no, wait a second. I know something about that. Or wait a second. I I don't know anything about that, but I can tell that no one would want one of those or whatever that is. So, um, Conditions to allow for collaboration are critical, and I wrote down a bunch of them in anticipation of this conversation, but but one of them is having the right people. You don't just say, all right, you arbitrary bunch of folks, we're going to collaborate. I mean, you can, and organizations do, and you may be tasked with that in your business. <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. Um, uh, and, and it can be done. It can be transformational, but it's going to come with some... Uh, some energy, and there may be some impact on the organization's existing culture. But this was Ed's observation, is you want to hire for depth, because everybody hires for depth. You want people who are good at what they do. But if you hire for depth, you have the very real problem of... Depth. (laughs) I know this really, really well. And so that's what we're going to do. And we're going to do it the way I know it really well, because experts see that. And there was a narrowing that comes with expertise. So Ed says, I'm worried about depth if it doesn't come with breadth. I want somebody who's really, really good at something, but who knows the context in which that something exists and is large enough to be at least interested that it's not just, you know, 18th century brushwork in uh, in painting, but you know, all kinds of painting and Jackson Pollock and splatters and printmaking and okay, well then I. That's that's the 18th century painting expert I want is the one that knows about Jackson Pollock. If you're lucky enough to find somebody who is both deep and broad, they're still not going to benefit your organization because they're just sitting there being deep and broad. They're looking at this book and they're thinking about this concept, and it's like so. You got to have a communicator, somebody who is really interested and not just in saying I have this thing in my you know. I'm sure you've experienced this. There's this huge domain of communicators who are going to emit something that fits in with what they're already thinking. And if you were inside their head, you would be right lockstep with their thoughts. But they're not working hard to bring you along. And storytellers, the other kind of communicator, are constantly thinking about what part of the story that's in my head have I made available to you? And how am I gonna reveal the parts you don't know yet? And when are you gonna get excited as I am at the connection between this click and that clack? Um, And it isn't merely being audience oriented, but there's something deep about it. So you've got somebody who's really deep in what they do, but they've got a context that gives them breadth to understand it. And they're interested in knowing what you think about it. And they wanna share something about that. You'd probably hire that person in any case, but at Pixar, the goal was to go one layer further and say, did they have the heart of a collaborator that said, well, that's what I think, but what do you think? Mm. We would always end an interview at Pixar, always end. We would often end an interview at Pixar with a conversation that went something like this, was like, well, what did you think? Yeah, I'm suffering from a little bit of eye strain. Yeah, I have some eye strain too. And what that meant was the candidate had said, well, I did this and I did that. and I can do this and I'll be this at Pixar. And we're like, OK, you know, it, an eye strain candidate was one of those people who were assertive about their skills as opposed to being curious about their fit. So, Chris, does that speak to what you were asking yeah, absolutely, uh,
3: absolutely. A, a, yeah yeah as you're sharing it too i'm envisioning
1: communication collaboration
3: yeah yeah and we talk about you know organizational silos right and the context yeah. that, that 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 also is like people sharing just in an interview setting hey i i i they're presenting themselves as a silo <laughs> um right and and you know apple was uh is similar is similar to pixar too right where those interviews, those conversations, if, if there wasn't a lot of, we, then like that, that was a (laughs) threshold, right? Like that was, that was, they're not, you know, seeing it. Um, what, what the experience is, they don't get it right. Like there's that, that they're not, they're not Apple. They don't get it. Um, and there's truth to that. Right. And I love that, you know, what you shared about, you know, there's, you know, kind of that, or they, they have a heart of a collaborator and yeah, it's so powerful.
1: One of the things that I thought was really gracious on Pixar's part is the technical people in filmmaking, they study probably through their masters. Some very specific domains, they're the equivalent of a sculptor, they make um, three-dimensional models. Or they're uh, the equivalent of a sort of puppet hinger. they do the articulation. Or they um, figure out how to cover the surfaces with software that react to light in a way that's believable. Um, every one of those specialities, and they've done nothing but that. And then if they were uh, hired at Pixar, the very first thing we did was we put them into 10 weeks of training. where We took them through a cycle. We had proprietary tools, so you had to do that. But at the end of that time, the question wasn't like, okay, here's your assignment, but rather you've spent your – we hired you as a modeler. Uh, You do really good modeling work. Um, uh, But you seem to have some aptitude for lighting. And, you know, you're not the best lighter in the class, but you're probably the most passionate person we've run into in a long time about how light transforms these surfaces. And, And some of your work is good and some of your work is not as good. And You've got a ways to go. But you seem completely engaged. Have you ever considered being a lighter? And there were people who hired after doing six years and, you know, undergrad grad school to be modelers who came into the studio and after 10 weeks said we said to them here's this thing you might be really good at and having somebody engaged at that level because they're learning and yet competent and gaining that competency turned out to be so much better than taking somebody who had been doing modeling for six years and now they're going to be grinding out models for a show and doing uh, could we Get them excited again. The same process applied, and I think this is marvelous. might be a bit off topic, but I think it fits. Part of collaboration is, I wrote down a quote that I want to read, or maybe I did. Uh, Benjamin Zander is the conductor, was the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic, and he says, the conductor of an orchestra doesn't make a sound. He depends for his power on his ability to make others powerful. My job was to awaken the possibility in other people, oh, and wow. that really That's strikes so me. It's like, first of all, the, the leader of a collaboration um, that whose outcome is sound, full stop, doesn't make any sound. Um, so to to create something that awakens possibilities in others um, and driven by curiosity and interest. Um, so how do you pick the right film for the next film to make? Well, you'd think you'd get some audition films, right? At Pixar, you had to do three pitches. Um, if you were considered to be a possible director. Um, and how do you pick which pitch? Here's one that you look at and you go, that, you could make that movie tomorrow. It is really stitched together, got a beginning, middle, and end. I understand the characters. I'm engaged. Those are interesting, whatever they are, nuts and bolts, whoever the characters are in this thing. Um, those are interesting nuts and bolts. That it, ah. Here's this other one that the ideas just aren't as well formed. And then here's this one in the middle where it seems like you're searching for something. I don't know what you're searching for, but Which film would you make? Well, logic tells you you make the one that's ready to be made. I understand the characters, beginning, middle, and end, got great bits. You don't make the one that's sort of uncertain. It's not as well-told story. But the one in the middle that's where there's all this curiosity, that's the one that Pixar would pick. You get the film made because the studio, the brain trust, said, you have so much to learn about this topic. You'll be engaged through the uh, an entire film process. You don't understand this topic at this point, but you're so interested in it that we think we've got a built-in win here because you won't you won't walk away, you won't close your eyes, you won't stop motivating your team until the last stone has been uh, uh, turned on this idea of... You know, is it a daddy lamp or a baby lamp? Um, you know, whatever that is. And that always struck me.
0: This episode of Lead with a Question was produced by me, Rob Callen, with support from my co-hosts and Core founders, Chris Deaver and Ian Claussen. The music you heard was composed by Ian as part of another project he's involved in called Moon Machine. Dave Arcade created our podcast cover art. Special thanks to Randy Nelson for the amazing stories and principles he shared today. And there's more where that came from. Be sure to catch part two of our conversation next time. Also, we really appreciate you for taking the time to co-create these conversations with us, especially when there are so many other things you could be doing. If you found any value at all in these episodes, could you do a favor, leave us a rating, even a review, wherever you're listening right now. It takes about two minutes and helps others discover the show as well. If you want to learn more about the work we're doing at BraveCore, you can check out our website at bravecore.co. The Lead with a Question podcast is a production of BraveCore, LLC. Thanks for being with us.